0: Welcome to MLOps Live, a podcast by Neptune AI.
1: We host in-depth discussions where machine learning practitioners answer questions from other practitioners about one subject related to production machine learning and MLOps.
0: Tune in to get real-life stories, dirty hacks, and pragmatic workarounds from ML people in the trenches. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to MLOps Live. I'm Sabine, and I'm joined by my co-host, Steven. Hi, everyone. Hey, Steven. This is an interactive Q&A, so if you have any questions for our guests, please just raise your hand here in Zoom, and we'll read your question as soon as possible. If you want to ask anonymously, you can also send a DM directly to me, and I will be picking your question up. And you can also write in the normal chat if you have any question to our guest. So feel free to type there as well. Our guest today is Martin Tuszynski, who is currently a data scientist at Respo Vision, a consulting firm that revolutionizes football with the help of artificial intelligence. And Martin also has almost a decade of experience in the tech industry. He's held research and analytics positions in companies such as Allegro and Ernst & Young. So welcome to the show, Martin.
2: Hi there. Thank you for having me.
0: It's very good to have you here. Could you maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, sure. So I'm mainly a self-taught data scientist with some academic background from the area of statistics. I did also manage to get, I did also graduate in finance and accounting, but fortunately I'm not working in that field right now. So I sort of went through the whole process of transition from data analyst through research engineer, to data scientist, or the other way around, maybe. Right now, I arrived at Respo, where I can finally work on something that I truly love, that is football. And I'm leading a team of data scientists here, and we're working on core deep learning models that compose our main processing pipeline.
0: Right, so it's about kind of like enhancing the enjoyment side or the entertainment side of football, right? It's more
2: about extracting all the possible data that we can. So the idea for RespoVision is to gather all the data about players, how they are running, where they are on the field in each moment from a single camera feed. That's what sort of makes Respo different from other companies that provide data that Mm -hmm. we are not using our own setup on the stadiums. We can use a broadcast camera or we can use some other a panoramic camera that we receive from our clients and then extract 3D data of all players on the field just from that.
0: I see. And could you go into a little deeper at just your role? You mentioned you have a team there at Respo.
2: Yeah, we are working on, let's call them, the core deep learning models. This is basically detection, segmentation, player tracking, player recognition, identification. Well, there's also pitch estimation and some other minor, minor other areas that we are working on. And what we're trying to do is sort of iterate with providing even better models with each iteration for every step. As our system right now is composed of like several blocks that in the end lead to providing three D positional data.
0: That sounds very cool. And we're gonna go into the questions here now from the community with Stephen.
1: Yeah, thanks for. I'm um, sharing that, uh, and Thanks, Sabin. I think we'll just start off with really understanding some of the problems that you saw Res Provision so that gives a context to um, the episode.
2: Okay. So as I said previously, what RespoVision is aimed at is extracting 3D positional data. So where players mm-hmm. have each of their hands, feet, and so on at in every frame of the video of the game that we get. In order to get there, we have to tackle multiple machine learning problems. From First from classification to actually run our system on proper frames where we can detect players and so on. Then detection, segmentation, tracking those players, extracting key points up to pulse estimation and key points estimation in 3D. So that's like the main idea. But this is obviously just the tip of the iceberg because we have much more going on with both our online and offline processing pipelines. So right now we are working on both online processing, where we can provide, let's say, majority of the data that I mentioned previously live for the clubs, for example, to analyze the game as it's going on. But also we have an offline pipeline where we can provide a bit more accurate data together with the 3D key points, with the 3D positional data later on. So this is a whole system that's split into two parts. And also there is a layer of data where we are trying to gather everything and store it well, sort of in an organized manner, which is not that easy when we're talking about video or images, data sets. Yeah, so these are the problems that we have address provision and that we are
1: trying to solve. Right, and beyond uh, machine learning techniques, are there other particular technologies or techniques that you leverage to solve these problems?
2: We have, we're using a few frameworks. Obviously, Mm -hmm. aside from machine learning, tools like Torch, we are using Kedro pipelines for our processing. This was true up until, let's say, a month ago, because we stopped using Kedro. We developed our own system to run machine learning pipelines or MLOPS pipelines, as we found that Kedro is not necessarily scaling well with what we have. There were several issues that we had, for example, with loading all of the data sets. So the startup of the whole Kedro framework was very slow. And in the end, each processing pipeline took like a minute or two simply load everything and check if everything is there. Right now, we don't have this advantage with our new system. As I said, our system is built from several blocks. So if you have like 80 steps to cover, then adding a minute or two on each step really amounts to some time that we are losing. So we skipped using Kedro. Right now, all our pipelines for the offline offline version are running on Argo. Argo pipeline is um, like overlay on Kubernetes and it's working well. It allows us to scale up all of our processing. For the online system, we have our own solution that is quite efficient. Right now, we are able to provide majority of the, of the information in real time for 8K input.
1: So that's... Right, and these are all purely supporting machine learning pipelines, right?
2: Yeah, in majority, yeah.
1: Okay, okay, awesome. So yeah, I mean, you've given us a glimpse into some of the challenges and one is the optimization problem you talked about with Enkedro. So what are some of the other big challenges you face with running computer vision systems at scale? in production, from development to production?
2: I would say that one of the biggest problems when it comes to running computer vision, uh, computer vision systems, is the data quality that we receive. Often if it's like a streaming data, then the stream can fail. We can receive, we can have some gaps within that and our system has to be able to handle it, which wasn't as easy for us at the beginning as it, it will seem. So yeah, that's one issue. Another problem that we had was sort of using the same models when we were training them and creating new ones and then deploying to production. Because, for example, if we wanted to add some new feature, we had to update some third-party libraries and it would not go well with our main uh, production pipeline. So this was a huge issue. This is where sort of TorchScript comes in to sort of separate whole idea of training machine learning models from the production deployment system. So it's really not related. So we'd have a separate code base for each one and then just use one sort of compiled model that is just used for inference in the production system. That was another issue that we had. Also another thing, especially when it comes to processing video data, to processing video data, is sort of full tolerance. For example, if we receive data that our model said, okay, this is a good data that we can go through to the next step. But in reality, there is like, for example, we have a frame of the game where there are no detections of the players because, for example, it was a zoom on someone on the stands or something like that and it went first filtering step. So in the next step, there is a detection, then we try to apply some several advancements on, based on those detections, and there is nothing in there. So the system has to be able to cope with the fact that the data is missing, not start throwing errors that we didn't prepare for that. Other issues when deploying computer vision systems, I would say to have more memory than estimated, because it's always <laughs> yeah. an issue. I mean, we always tested our system extensively. And in the end, we often needed more memory than expected. For example, well, one example would be if when we are using external frameworks like MM Detection or Detectron, we had issues with detection and segmentation because during the break, when all the substitute players went onto the field, went onto the field and basically started warming up and so on. Suddenly, we had like 60 detections instead of 22. And if we have 60 detections, then every consecutive model would require more memory to store that information. And we didn't account for that, for example. That's another issue. Yeah, I think that those are few of the most important.
1: Yeah, and I think if you ask any small team, or maybe even mid-skilled team or hyper-skilled team, it's always the infrastructure case that's the issue because to run these models, you probably need GPUs or how do you sort of optimize your models to not just use fewer resources, but also ensure that you don't trade off all the accuracy, right, for trying to use smaller memory? Yeah,
2: yeah so we sort of try to separate all of our models from the rest of the data processing. So this is the part of our system where we try to keep the data processing in a single sort of executor and then have another executor that does only the GPU-based part and pass the data along to another one and another one and another one. So the idea is that we know what GPUs are available. For example, A10s, NVIDIA GPUs. We know how much memory they've got. We sort of try to set the limit there. So for example, if we know that... Currently, I don't know, ResNet 50 would be the maximum that we can insert. We're not trying to go any further and see, well, maybe having a bigger model would be better, but then we would have to get another GPU, maybe try pruning this model, try quantizing it. But it always ends up with, okay, but if we are going to somehow make this model smaller, we will lose quality. So we simply try not to go there in the first place just to stick to the smallest model possible in order not to be, well, sad when the quality goes down.
1: Very great, and thanks for asking. I think when we started this conversation, you talked about something in the sphere of data, talking about data quality, I meant. i was sort of curious, how do you deal with large datasets in your computer vision systems, even like not just during development when you run the training, but also when STEM is out there in the wild, in the field, in the football match, processing data from different sources?
2: Okay, so the first thing, the data quality, it's sort of an issue that we had for quite some time. I mean, if you think about, for example, player identification, then if we had a low resolution, for example, 1080p, then the player in the far corner would have like 20 by 10 pixels. It would be his size. So actually knowing who the player is would be impossible. So we sort of try to prepare our system in few versions for different data quality. And we sort of have an estimate basically from our experience, depending on the source. So for example, we know that this provider of the video would provide us with such quality and we can pick the correct setting for the system to run smoothly. And hope that answers this question, your question.
1: Yeah, that works as well. And in terms of the storage aspects as well, is, he, is are these things, I think these are real-time processing, right? They happen in real-time, they don't happen in batches. Okay, and what are sort of the challenges that happens with real-time data streaming in that sense? Because I think the architecture would have to be different compared to applications that use sort of batch data, run the processing and then send the results later. What are some of those challenges you face with that real-time processing system?
2: With real-time processing, I think one of the biggest challenges is to keep them in order sort of. because if you have like temporal models or temporal parts of the system that has to take into account what was happening a frame before and right now, then it has to run sequentially. So basically if you have, we have any part of the system that does that, this is sort of our worst point. That's our performance. Every other model is probably twice as fast or three times as fast. But we also have to slow down to the slowest part. And this is especially tricky because in the end, the video that we sort of send back at the end has to be in order. So this is a constraint we are using. For example, if we were running an offline pipeline, this wouldn't be an issue and it would be much faster than it is right now. I mean, as I said, at the moment, we can run a 8K resolution video live in more than 20 frames per second. So that's quite an achievement, but we could do better if it wasn't for a few temporal models that actually required order of the frames to be precise.
1: Great, great. I don't know if it's going to be part of it, but maybe just give us an idea of what are temporal models in this context.
2: For example, player tracking would be one thing. So basically, we have a, one frame and then another, and we have to match which player in the frame T plus one was in the, play, in the frame T. So this is a sort of part of the system that has to get those frames in such order. We cannot get first the frame T plus one, then the frame T, because it wouldn't work. So that's sort of one idea of such model. Another one would be a camera tracking. So when we have a broadcast information, then we have to track at which part of the pitch we are actually looking at the moment. So this is much easier if we are actually tracking the movement of the camera instead of sort of calibrating on which part of the pitch we are looking at every frame.
1: Right. right, thank you for sharing that. So I think we can jump right into some of the questions from the community. So first question, this person asks, can you discuss a specific project where you faced MLO's challenges in computer vision? I know you've talked about that, but do you have another context or example?
2: Yeah. Okay, so I would like to go back to the previous company I worked for, Allegro. It's a huge e-commerce company, the biggest one in Poland. And we're working on a visual search engine for Allegro, which was a bit troublesome because there is a lot of data that we have and it wasn't well it wasn't because it's changing still it wasn't necessarily that organized as you think because it's well Allegro wasn't exactly like Amazon and we had not only shops but also like regular people selling there so we didn't have all the items properly classified we sort of thought of them as offers So those were just offerings from different people, different shops, and so on. And also, if you think about visual search for e-commerce, it's still sort of a gimmick. It's not exactly a feature that is crucial to the existence of such platform. So it was a nice feature. We wanted to add it. We started working on the models from the fashion department because we thought that people would look for clothes for stuff like that using pictures. And in the end, they did, but that's a whole different story. But our biggest problem was actually testing those models, right? So when we were training models, it was fairly simple. We would train those models in sort of a uh, similarity manner. So we would get embeddings for each offer and then simply find the nearest neighbor to that embedding in our offer database. But for the testing, especially with new models, it was quite hard. We were sort of accustomed to using A-B testing previously in the regular textual search. And we wanted to use that in the visual search. But as I said, it was a gimmick. It was a novelty. So many people were just using it for fun. So they were taking pictures of stuff that we couldn't possibly have and then click on something that they thought was funny. So A-B testing was not entirely plausible for us because it just didn't provide accurate results. Also sort of testing it synthetically on smaller data sets didn't work well. And finally, what we had to do to sort of make sure that the new models are proper and they are better than the ones that they were before, we had to develop a whole app that ran on production, like on the side of Allegra another microservice that we would use internally. Our internal annotators would use it. And simply there was a like, another version of the visual search that was available in the app on the phone. It was available for you on the website, some light interface, and they would simply go through a set of images that they made, see the results from the old model, see the results from the new model, and select all the ones that were proper. And then we could assess if the model is actually better on the whole database of all offers that we had available. So it was a bit unusual because in order to test a new feature, we had to develop a whole new way of testing it instead of using what we had previously. And also just synthetic tests weren't enough. There was a correlation between them, but it wasn't as good as we would have hoped. So we had to go through this process every time we had a new model.
1: And was that sustainable in any sense?
2: I wouldn't say that was sustainable, but I think that over time, when people stopped playing with the visual search and started Mm. using it, A-B testing became more feasible than it was at the beginning. So I hope that right now they don't have to use this app anymore because the front-end I wrote was horrible.
1: Right. And, And speaking of testing, I think we have one question from the community on testing, and this person asks, Just in line with your response you gave us, what are some roadblocks specific to testing CV pipelines for production?
2: Okay, so roadblocks specific to testing computer vision pipelines. This is basically what I said previously. We cannot sort of prepare for what's coming. The data input that we can think about, the images for visual search, the video of the game that we get, We can think of many things, but in the end, the users will always surprise us. So the system has to sort of be, that's the ugly saying, garbage in, garbage out. So we have to sort of be able to tell the user that, okay, this won't work. So that's one thing. Another thing I would say when it comes to testing is like simple stuff like connection quality. I mean, sometimes when we were running our live system, the biggest issue was actually the speed at which we were getting the data to the system, not the speed at which the system could actually process the data. So we could be ready for an 8K video quality deployment, but in the end we had to run with like 4K or 1080p quality because we couldn't receive better one. Yeah, so those are some roadblocks. Also, it's often hard to, well, let's say test the system when we don't have real-world data. I mean, for example, for the visual search, when we were working on it, we had to, actually, our team had to go around our houses because this was during the pandemic, and we are taking photos of stuff that we have at home to use it as our test data set to analyze what we can possibly get.
1: Good information. Yeah, so those are some roadblocks. That was good improvisation in that sense. Yeah,
0: we do have a question on LinkedIn from Adrian Matei. He is asking, Martin, do you have any fully automated ML pipelines in production, such as automated retraining, orchestration based on triggers, feedback loops, CI/CD?
2: So we have continuous test. So sort of, we have continuous testing. So basically, we, that's one of the places that we are using Neptune AI. Basically, before every release, every merge to the master branch, we are running a set of tests for each of the models, for the whole system, if it works properly. And then we are using Neptune to store such information for later on. This proved to be quite useful more than a few times because we could go back to the historical results and see how our models improved on some held out data set that was just there for the continuous testing. For the automated like training models, we don't have that at the moment. I think that we are sort of still in the phase where we change the architecture of the models so rapidly and so often that
1: we cannot rely
2: on automatic process
1: to do this for us.
0: Awesome. Thanks Martin, and thank you Adrian for the question.
1: Great. Yeah, back to the community questions and just in line with the testing, I think it's also crucial I bring up this question from Kimo, from the community who asked, how do you plan for reliability of your systems in production, your CV systems in production? So I assume things like ensuring, you talked about fault tolerance earlier, or ensuring, like how do I call it, outages and problems, avoiding things around that.
2: Yeah, so right now, what we are doing, I mean, I will be trying to focus here on the online system because the offline processing is a bit different story. So right now, what we are basically doing is When we have something going live, we have more than one clone of our whole system running. So if anything fails with one machine, we can seamlessly change to another one, which has already the same information, it's just not sending the output back. So that's one thing. Another thing to test how reliable the system is, especially with machine learning, is to, for example, feed some old videos, old videos with some additional information. So, for example, some, I don't know, highlights from different games for, for example, 24 hours. We did this test when we started running our system live in high quality. So we basically took few games and ran them for 24 hours straight and checked if the system works. I mean, if it works for 24 hours, then it's our best guess that it will work for the 90 minutes of the game itself. So those are our ideas to tackle the reliability.
1: Yeah, and also, are there infrastructure, obviously aside from running out of memory when doing the analytics and stuff, but are there other infrastructure-related problems that people should be worried about when these systems are online?
2: Okay, so we had like few problems with the storage available. It was actually well, maybe not funny. Anyway, the problem was that we had Not enough storage to store the video of the game because if you think about a game in 8K quality, it takes a lot of memory, like half a terabyte of data. So that's something that we weren't prepared for and we have to quickly set up a new machine with much bigger hard drive and then get it up and running on there. So this is always the case with videos and with images. Also, somewhere within our... Well, this is annotation process. This is not the live processing pipeline. We have something... Well, it enables us to quickly annotate, quickly identify players for model training, to improve data that we have. This basically looks like a few players in a row and you have like many different tracks from the game. And in the end, we uh, obtained an image that was so huge that it wasn't possible to open it in any known to me at least, software, because it was too huge that it would it not would go in. It had like 700,000 pixels of height. Right. So mm-hmm. basically all software said, okay, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to open this. This was a bit tricky because for our annotation team, we had to sort of take it back, cut it into pieces, send it again. And this was the first time that we actually saw such problem.
1: Right, interesting. All right, so we have... Another question from a community member who is currently working on a video analytics system and they're about to deploy it to production. And uh, for them, first timers, what are some challenges they should expect running the system in production? First timers.
2: Okay, so there's also the case of properly decoding the data. I mean, if you have like unstable stream, it's possible that some parts won't get through and then you'll receive like empty data within the video. and this throws many libraries off and they basically say, okay, I'm not going to decode this. So you have to account for that. So this is one of the issues. Another one is not to rely very heavily on what's working offline. I mean, we also have our like, sort of simulated version of our online system, but in the end, it never works exactly the same as the online one. So it's important to run such tests, for example, on some simulated video feed, but running like in the full operational online manner instead of trying to think, okay, what would happen if we had the simulation and try it offline? So that's one thing to keep in mind. And also to check if maybe some parts of the system are well really necessary. I mean, for this is sort of the case of development versus production. So let's think about it. Okay, maybe let's let's use an example. It will be easier. So, for example, we have a pipeline that does team recognition, basically takes all the players on the pitch and splits them into proper teams. So this is quite tricky because it's working in an unsupervised manner online during the game. So because we cannot actually prepare for that before the game. And we have like loads of information that we try to save. For analysis, for debugging, for development. But for the production system, we are sort of cutting everything out that we are not using. So this is like an issue that we had for quite some time, that we kept that data and it slowed us down. So right now, like putting a line between the development part and the production part and turning this development parts off makes much more sense and the system is much lighter.
1: Great. And you mentioned some. Drift in performance there. And I think that's a very common thing when it comes to running the systems in production. And how do you sort of manage that whereby your system has this certain level of performance that's satisfactory in production, but when you deploy it, there's that model drift in quotes that has. So, how do you sort of handle that discrepancy between performance and training versus what you get in production for systems?
2: I would say that the sort of the model drift is not happening in our case because the football games are not changing that rapidly. I mean, if we had such models as like sort of static player recognition that we have a database of embeddings for each player, and then we are using them to identify, okay, that's Lionel Messi, that's Cristiano Ronaldo, and so on and so on, that would be an issue. The same would go for the teams. But right now we are doing all of that in an unsupervised manner online. And simply were relying on extracting the numbers from player jerseys to identify them properly. So this is not the case, but we had like few issues with not model drift as such, but related. So to give one example, we had a problem with detection where in our, this is more maybe related to bias in the data. We had few games that we used for model training We had a few games that we used for the model training, and the referee was always wearing either a black shirt or a yellow one. Then the next game that we actually used our system on, the referee had a blue shirt and the goalkeeper had a yellow one. So basically the model saw only referee in those two colors. So he said, okay, the goalkeeper is the referee and the referee is the goalkeeper because those colors did switch. So... That's something that we didn't account for right now. We are trying to sort of keep such things in mind and check what kids the referees will have, the goalkeepers will have, and ensure that we have everything in our data set. And talking about bias, also another sort of funny example here would be the yellow ball that is during the winter part of the season. So it's visible on the snow. So basically the model learns that the ball is white, And then he sees a yellow ball, then he's trying to pick on something else. For example, player shoes or player head. If they have like white hair, for example, Neymar head, like a short white hair for a moment and our model picked it up as a ball. Yeah, so that's more about data bias, but it's the closest thing that we have to the model drift at the moment.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. That's understandable. And how many pipelines are typically going to be running in just one football match? Because I feel like there are a lot of things that are different processes that are involved in this.
2: Yeah, we have like, I'm not sure, 40 pipelines Mm -hmm. that have to run to actually produce the final data set. But it may be more. We are still in the process of sort of merging some of the models. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that we moved from Kedro to our own system uh, made it possible to actually split those pipelines into more parts. Because right now, as we don't have any overhead for starting them, then we can try to make them as atomic as possible.
1: Awesome.
0: Okay. We do have a question again on LinkedIn from Vishnu Lal. this time. He wants to know a little bit about data annotation you might be using, such as bounding boxes or polygons.
2: Okay. So for data annotation, we are using the CVAT tool. I guess it's quite well known in the community. And we have a team of annotators here internally. I do think that they play a crucial part in creating our pipelines because basically many tasks require some sort of football knowledge. And also, I think that this is one of the biggest problems when it comes to computer vision when working with data is the data ambiguity. So basically, for example, how much of the player do we have to see on the frame to actually label him. Is it just one leg? Is it one leg and one arm? And then we are saying, okay, he's there, but just part of him is outside of the image. So sort of keeping in touch with the with our internal annotation team makes it possible to set some threshold and arrive at a certain understanding of what we need. And I think that over time, it got much easier. And whenever we are sending data outside to annotate, we often have to Either provide a lot of examples to get there or simply then correct those annotations. And answering the part, uh, what sort of data we are annotating, that's mainly bounding boxes, but also identities. And this is sort of the part that requires some knowledge about football because, as I said previously, for if we had a poor quality video, then recognizing the players from the stills is sometimes nearly impossible. I'm not able to do this properly most of the time and somehow they can.
1: So I guess kudos to them.
0: Awesome. Thank you for the question, Vishnu.
1: Yeah. And Mason, apart from experiment tracking, are there other MLOps components that you use under the hood that's not quite obvious, maybe like feature stores or things like that to solve some of these challenges?
2: At the moment, we are not using anything like that. I mean, as our system has to run mainly live, and we it's not well, We don't have the need to store such information. Obviously, we are using our own system. We are using Neptune for models training, for continuous testing. We are using Sigmat for data labeling. We have Argo. We are using at the moment also TorchScript, which I think is quite well. I'd say it's crucial to creating scalable systems. What else? Obviously, we are using Docker, but I think that's not exactly an ML ops specific tooling. If I'm thinking about MLOps, uh, one of the parts would be creating a stable environment for the system to run in, right? So Docker is one part. So setting properly the system to have proper version of drivers in a replicable manner to set it Mm. in any cloud that we want is one part. But another one is, for example, using proper package manager. So for quite some time, we are using Peep and Anaconda to do this. But in the end, Peep was quite slow. That was one issue. On the other hand, Anaconda was quite unstable. I mean, running the same pipeline twice of creating the environment and installing everything could produce different results. And this was something that we couldn't rely on. So right now, we move to Poetry. That's like, I think that's the newest package manager for Python that's available. It's vaguely based on the ideas taken from Rust, if I'm not mistaken, from Cargo, the Rust Packet Manager. Yeah, so that's something that I can definitely recommend to sort of make sure that all of the libraries and the setup is done properly. I guess that, that's it.
1: Yeah. And from the outside, I see that reproducibility is very crucial for your work. So if I'm not mistaken, yes. Yeah. Being able to, yeah, being able to produce results and so I'm sort of thinking, are there specific things that, that prevents that from happening? Because you talked about the package manager now. And I was sort of curious, was that a hardware challenge that made it that made it easy for the results to be vastly different? Or what are those difficulties that you face with reproducing your results?
2: I don't know if I got the question right, but one of the issues that we have when processing large amounts of data is actually the cloud could be the cloud provider. For example, if we don't have that many machines available with GPUs. So this is an issue and we are using multiple clouds at the moment to run our processing pipelines to be able to deliver the data quickly. Could you repeat the part about the quality because you said something about the output quality if I'm mistaken?
1: Yes, yes, the, the output quality, right? Because I feel when you run the training, right, you want to make sure that the results that you get are reproducible. Right, the data sets you sort of extract from these football matches. Are, i was sort of wondering what are the barriers that prevent that repeatability to that particular process?
2: So one thing would be the data processing, like the pre-processing of the data that comes into the models. So as it often is, like within our pipeline where we train the model, we come up with like some clever way of processing the data that later on is not applicable in our live system. So we sort of have to first sit down with our software developers, uh, our DevOps engineers, and simply sort of come to understanding of what kind of data that we can get, what processing we can apply there, and then we have to train model based on that. Also, like, there's another part because we are creating models, but then we are sort of using whole modules. So, for example, we have a model that predicts where certain parts of the pitch are. For example, the corners, all the lines, and stuff like that. But then we have a whole module that actually turns that information into a proper projection of what's happening on the screen onto the plane of the pitch. And also does the camera tracking. So, basically, what we have to do is run a set of experiments that are using the module and run a set of experiments that are using the model and compare the metrics between one another to make sure that those are aligned. So if we are getting a better model, some synthetic data, then the module that's running later on in the production pipeline also will get better results. So this was, for example, the case with pitch geometry, where the quality of our production wasn't as good as it could have been. And it turns out that we had some differences in the way that we processed images and checking if those metrics were aligned, like between our machine learning training and then the deployment part allowed us to find those discrepancies.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Thank you. And then you spoke about all the software developers and the engineers involved. And I'm sort of wondering, because one of the key aspects of MLOps is just generally the people, the team itself. So what are the challenges with cross-team collaboration when you have to collaborate with the software developer to maybe move the models to integrate it with the production system or the data engineer? What are those challenges that teams should be aware of, people should be aware of when when it comes to deploying these systems?
2: I think that one of the biggest challenges is to sort of coming to an understanding of what we're trying to achieve. And like one thing would be to create a system that can deploy many machine learning models. But whole another story is to create a team that knows why those machine learning models are there and what we are trying to achieve. And I think that at Respo, we sort of achieved this. I think that we don't have any, like, any problems between us creating the models and software developers, introducing them into our pipeline. Maybe this is the case of working in a startup and a small company where we work closely. But also, I think that's, it's quite an important aspect to keep those code bases apart i mean as long as sort of we are able to create models apart from like on the side of the main production system and then simply feed those models there it's much easier and then we just have to set some set of rules for how for what data is going into the models
1: great all right awesome so we have uh, another question from a community member who is asking What are some of the key trends and emerging technologies in computer vision that you think would have significant impacts in the coming years?
2: I will try not to talk about GPT-4 here, (laughs) (laughs) obviously, but I think that that's a bit the direction that we are going in. I mean, computer vision is sort of at the moment following what's happening in NLP and then transferring such knowledge to vision problems. But from sort of another perspective, I think that one major aspect that will be crucial in in the upcoming years will be creating end-to-end models. As I said, we had like 40 different parts of our system. And what we're trying to work on now is actually merging them into like 10. So we are trying to merge multiple models into one sort of in form of like multitask learning or end-to-end model training, and this is becoming more popular. I recently saw a publication from Beijing University. It was called Motion Bird, which sort of incorporated both person detection, key points detection, and then 3D estimation, and I think also action recognition, all within one model. So I think that's the way that, that's the direction that everything will go to because it simply works better now that we have bigger models that we have data that is we have models that can be more contextual then using multiple tasks at once just as in NLP will work much better and we saw that recently because we used to have different models for player detection for ball detection, numbers detection and stuff like that and merging them within one, Made sense and actually improved the results. Also reduced the computational overhead and energy consumption.
1: Great, great. And just going back to one of your answers earlier, where you talked about one of the failures of the system, which is the bias when it learns to recognize balls are just white, and then when there's an odd outlier, it it becomes. uh, I'm so worried. I'm so thinking. From this is a community question, by the way. And I'm thinking, how do you handle the biases with these systems to make sure that They can, whenever there's an outlier type of scenario like that, they can also catch that situation.
2: I guess that handling the bias in the video data or images data sets is a bit more troublesome than in some other cases. That's also thanks to the data ambiguity. I mean, where is the line that we are actually classifying something? For example, one great example would be labeling people in a crowd. I mean, if we can see like a leg that's somewhere behind the person and then a hand on the other side, how do we label them? Do we keep just one hand? Do we produce a whole bounding box around the whole person? That's a bit ambiguous and it introduces some form of bias. So if our data was labeled sort of improperly, for example, we had just half of the player labeled when he was occluded by another one then it will end up within the model and in our final data. And I think that for data related to football, there is no other way than gather as much data as possible. I mean, what we are trying to do basically is to have like an even split between different leagues, different stadiums, different weathers, different kids. Actually, kids is a bit of a tricky part because we had some issues with recognizing teams especially with low quality input, because when we had low quality input and we had low quality of segmentation. And for example, our segmentation mask would cover part of the grass as well as the kit. And then the color of the kit, if you were to average it, would always be brown, no matter what kit the team had. Yeah, so fighting the bias here is just about gathering as diverse data as we can get our hands on.
1: Great. So yeah, we have a one on the personal side and. This person asks, how do you stay up to date with the latest trends and technologies and MLOs for computer vision? What resources do you rely on? Honestly, I
2: think that I cannot keep up with everything that's coming out. <laughs> I think that's... Relatable. My main like source of information is the Medium Daily Digest, like the top five articles. It's always, I mean, just reading the headlines is sometimes enough to know that something happening and it's worth checking out. Outside of that, I follow the YouTube channel of 2 Papers. So this is also sort of always like if there is some breaking change coming, it will be there. And also I try to stay updated about what's happening on conferences like CVPR or ICML to see what papers are published there. So I guess those are the three main sources, but I'm quite certain that I cannot keep up with all the tools that show
1: up. Yes, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that, Madsen.
0: Awesome. I guess we're ready to wrap up here. But before that, Martin, thanks so much for joining us. And would you like to tell people how they can follow you and maybe connect with you online?
2: I'm available on LinkedIn and you mm-hmm. can always drop me an email at martin.tuszynski at respovision. So that's a way to reach me, but I guess LinkedIn will be fine.
0: Awesome. Thank you for answering all the questions today. So this was our last episode of season one of the Neptune AI podcast, where Steven and I host a live Q&A with various MLOps practitioners. And the next season, will actually feature our CEO, Piotr, and our platform guru, Aurimas, hosting the discussion. And it will be more platform-oriented. So do not miss the next season. Steven and I will be thanking you for the company thus far. It's been a pleasure, Steven.
1: Same here. Same here, Seven. It's been a pleasure talking to MLOps practitioners doing real-world stuff and sharing those insights with you live and over a recorded podcast as well.
0: Certainly. And we're not going anywhere. You can stay in touch with us in the MLOps community Slack as well. And you will hear from us here at Neptune AI again very soon. So do follow us on socials for more updates. We're especially active on LinkedIn. But until next time, take care. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. MLOps Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. And you can register at neptune.ai slash events.
1: And then make sure to search for MLOps Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Click follow and don't miss any episodes.
0: Thanks and see you next time.